Hello and welcome to Big Earth Energy. I'm your host, Dwayne Fields, and our mission here is to discuss all things sustainable thinking and action. It's important, it's complicated, and we can all learn more about what's actually going on, and more importantly, why. And to give you some information as to who I am, I'm a presenter, an explorer, and I've been fortunate enough to have led many carbon neutral expeditions through some of the world's most inhospitable places. I also co-founded the We Too Foundation, a charity focused on encouraging young people from deprived areas to learn more about sustainable living and general climate literacy. We'll be speaking with experts from different fields of sustainable thinking and action to hear more about the work they're doing, why they're doing it, and what we could be doing to up our own environmental game. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviors. You can find them at twigcard.com. The theme of this episode is why finances are going green. And joining us to explore this idea is Maya Henekis from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Hello, Maya, and welcome to the podcast. Now, you work for the European Bank, EBRD. What do they do? Yeah, hi, it's very nice to be here. Thanks very much for having me. So we're a multilateral development bank. That means that we're a bank, but not a commercial bank. Our owners are governments. So we invest in many different countries and emerging markets, some developing markets across quite a wide geography. You used a lot of words there. You said a multilateral <laughs> bank. What does that mean? Because I'm a simple man. It's a bit like uh, the World Bank, if you want. So we're a bank that is held by many, many governments, the UK government, many other governments as well. And so we're part of the financing for development, so to speak. So we invest in a bunch of different countries. What's the overall mission for the EBRD? Look, our motto is changing lives because ultimately that's what it's about, right? We work on the environmental transformation, economic transformation, but at the end of the day, it's about the people. And I think it's also important when we think about climate change, not to forget that it's an environmental topic, but it has a very, very human side to it because ultimately it's about us. It's about the people. It's about our quality of life and how we interact with our nature. So it is not a mechanical topic. It's really ultimately about the people. Put this in a little bit of perspective for me now. When I think of a bank, I think of loads of people in suits who want to earn money and make investments into things. Now, traditionally, green energy is something that you hear a lot about and people saying, well, we need more investment. We need more investment. Is that the direction the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is going in? Yes, we're definitely going in that direction. So we've given ourselves pretty ambitious targets. So by 2025, we will be investing 50% of our annual new funding into green. We're already there almost. 50% is a big chunk. Is there something that you know that maybe the average person doesn't? I think we've started very early on to think about how finance can be made in a sustainable way. It's actually in our founding mandate, and that's 30 years ago. So uh, let's say sustainable finance is not new for us, but we've been learning a lot. We've been increasing it year by year by year. We've started with environmental social risk management. We've then expanded to really also harness the business opportunity. What would an environmental social risk be for, I don't know, Joe Bloggs on the bus? Let's say you finance a manufacturing plant for a company, a small SME, and they want to have a larger manufacturing plant. So you decide to finance that. 
So first you go, okay, you say, where are you going to put this on? Is this pristine nature or is it already industrialized nature? So if it's pristine nature, you're going to be destroying something, right? So this would be an environmental risk. If you're financing a wind farm and it's a bird migration path, and you may be impacting with those large aerogenerators, you may be impacting those birds, that's a biodiversity risk. So these are the kind of things that we're thinking about. How did you get involved in this? I'm an economist by trade, but I was always very interested in environmental topics. So very early on, I started to work around energy data, renewable energy. And then when I started to work for another development bank, I went into the area first of climate finance. So how can we structure projects that have a positive impact on the climate? And then I went into the ESG fields, so environmental social risk management. And now I'm doing both together. Do you think that there will come companies out there who are using funding and money to cover up for their inadequacies, their greenwashing? I think greenwashing is real. I mean, not everybody does it. Uh, thankfully, there's also many excellent companies out there that take this very seriously because they've understood the business case. They've understood that they have a, an imperative to be sustainable as well. But yeah, I mean, greenwashing is real, I think. Which is also why ESG and sustainability is so tricky because mm. it is very complicated. This is not as simple as just calculating some financial ratios. You have to really, really look. You have to understand we don't have a common language yet for what do we mean with ESG? What are the main factors? How do I calculate whether somebody is good or bad? Yeah, It's very tricky. It's a nascent industry. So is there disparity between ESG and everyone over there and the average person out there? No, I don't think so. I think it's very fluid. There's different levels of ambition. There's people that are much more advanced because it requires a lot of technical understanding, requires the right people, and of course the conviction. And that varies in levels. But I think, you know, you, you find everything on the spectrum. How has it been received? It's a bit funny because on the one hand, for some, it's become almost like a religion. And then there's also been quite some backlash in the last yeah. year or two. So... The reality, it's neither. For me, it's an imperative. It's really how we need to conceive our economic system. Let's talk about the backlash. What form does that come in? Is it just, you know, some disgruntled people? Is it much bigger than that? What does that look like? I think it has to do with the fact that perhaps a few years back, people thought, oh, great, there's something cool, new. We can make money and look really cool. And, and it's really not good new and shiny anymore. It. And no, I think they just figured out it's actually really difficult. So it's not like a quick win and you look fantastic while doing it. It's actually quite difficult. But I think that should not discourage us. I think we need to work on it because we have uh, a big challenge to address, which is climate change. And it benefits all of us. Now, is there enough energy behind it that we are going to get over this hump? Because one of my fears is that it was new, it was popular, there's lots of people behind it. And then the energy starts to wane and we end up missing out on something that we really need. I think we need to collectively keep the energy up and push it even further because now it's not automatic. We see that if it were there, the finance that goes towards uh, the transition would be much higher. We know that uh, much more individuals would make it as part of their lifestyle. We know that uh, industries would transform much quicker, but they don't. What's missing? Incentives. I think regulatory incentives. The returns aren't enough of an incentive. No, not necessarily, because they're not necessarily higher than for some traditional activities. So incentives need to be regulatory. Countries need to decide, look, this is how we want to transform our economic system. Do we need a bigger stick for the carrot? I mean, it could be. I personally prefer to 
surface the business case and show a company that I work with or a bank that I could work with why it's good for them and why it behooves them to take this seriously. But ultimately, especially for those that over a long period of time continue and continue to negate, then I think at some point, yeah. You're on a bus with a CEO. They are one of the companies that you most want to get behind this idea. What do you say to that person in those few minutes that you've got? Usually I find that when you can convince the CFO, not the okay. CEO, then the battle is won. Right. So it's the person that holds the purse strings that we need to get to. Correct. Because then they've understood the business case and that obviously is a big motivation for a business. And so it should. If this doesn't work out and we don't get it right and we don't get people behind it, what happens? I don't think we have an alternative. I mean, we know already the uh, consequences of climate change are already hitting us, yeah. whether it's extreme weather events, flooding, climate change will lead to a lot of migration from countries that are today livable, but may not be in 20 years, 30 years. So it will lead to war for resources, for water. Frankly, I don't see any alternative to fixing this. If I say the term climate literacy, what does that mean to you? It's a big topic for us. Clients, individuals, they need to understand what we mean with a climate agenda. It's not very impactful if it's just a goal for myself. It needs to be a shared agenda. So it's for us super important that our clients understand why we would, for example, prioritize a green investment over a traditional one. And they also need to come with us on this path. So we're financing also the transition. We're not only financing things that are already 100% green. But if we find an investment opportunity, let's say steel sector in Turkey, and we know, okay, look, there's a traditional way of financing steel and there's a more sustainable way of financing steel, then we would want to find a client that understands that and goes with us on that way and starts to decarbonize their business, reduce the waste, reduce water usage, etc., etc. How are you finding the buy-in at the moment? Because climate action and sustainability are really hot topics at the moment. Is it that you're noticing there's more buy-in? more recently or is it the same as it's always been? No, there's definitely much more buy-in nowadays. However, it is still a negotiation on yeah. each project because of course our economic system still does not put a price on carbon. It doesn't put a price on nature. It doesn't put a price on natural capital. So as a business owner, you obviously apply your financial ratios and then that doesn't factor there. So we have to kind of make up for that. Is that something that you think we should start doing and have a price on nature and a price on carbon? I think so, yeah. I think we should have a price on carbon. How would we benefit by having that? It would put a price on a public good. So individual companies that want to use that resource, which is essentially a public good, would actually pay for it instead of using it for free. If you come across me and I want to improve my sustainable living, what do I do? Maybe just for context, our carbon emissions are still increasing. And we're talking about we should be net zero by 2050, but for now we're not even on the downward path yet. We're still on an increasing path at a global level. That means we all need to play a role. And I think that also puts uh, the responsibility on us individuals. So just that as a disclaimer. Yes. And I think, what do you need to do? Well, it depends on your lifestyle, right? I think everybody needs to make an assessment. Am I flying a whole lot? Maybe I can fly a bit less. Do I have an unhealthy fashion addiction? Yeah, fast fashion, you know? Yeah. Well, as ladies, sometimes that happens. So, you know, everybody needs to assess where they can make gains. Let me put a different hat on now. I come to you and I say, oh, you know what? The problem's too big. It's something that I can't do. People out there are negating their responsibilities and 
they just don't know what's happening or they don't care to know what's happening. What do you say to someone like that? I think not knowing what happens, for me, that's not really a valid argument because the science is very clear. We've had many, many iterations of climate science, of the IPCC report telling us what to do. So science is very clear. And I think climate knowledge, climate information is accessible nowadays easily and also in very different digestible formats. Now, what I do agree with is the responsibility needs to come first where most carbon emissions are created. So for me, that is the industry. So I think it's fair to say that governments, industry, they need to think about this with more urgency because they are the big creators of carbon emissions. And therefore, I think they have the first responsibility to reduce them. Individuals, we can do what we can. And I think we should. Nobody should just say, I'm doing nothing, but in relation to what we create. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviors. You can find them at twigcard.com. There's so much talk at the moment about the real economy going green and the financial sector. Why is it that the financial sector needs to go green? First of all, for the real economy to go green, they need to finance that, right? Because it's a transition and every transition requires financial means to actually carry it out. The second thing is with the Paris Agreement, you know, the global community has given itself a goal. The goal is to maintain the global temperature increase to ideally 1.5 degrees Celsius or at least well below two. That, again, needs a lot of finance behind because currently we have a financing gap. We have this ultimate goal, but we don't have yet enough investment going into the different real economy sectors to actually get us to this goal. So do you think we could hit our target without the financial sector going as green as it can go? No, we cannot because the financial sector needs to A, start to really factor in the risk of climate change, which is a financial risk. So banks, funds, any financial player to understand, oh, hang on, if I put my money into a coal mine, but this coal mine is being decommissioned in a few years, I'm actually going to lose a whole lot of money. So climate risks need to be understood and factored in. And then if the real economy is going green, wants to go green, they will be asking for funding for this. They will be asking for funding for new technologies that are more energy efficient or in the agricultural sector, irrigation systems that use less water. So they will go to their banks and say, look, give me a loan for this irrigation technology. And the financial player needs to understand what that is and then be able to extend a loan. Is there a sector that the EBRD currently is focused on more? Could it be, I don't know, green energy? Could it be rewilding our forests? Is it water? What is it that they're paying attention to most? So we are sector agnostic. We look at all sectors. We have some exclusions of sectors that we do not want to finance anymore, like, for example, coal <laughs> energy. But we want to decarbonize all sectors. Now, in order to fulfill our own green finance targets, we do, of course, try and find lots of investments, for example, in renewable energy. But we would also look at other even high emitting sectors and then try and decarbonize those. There's a lot of talk at the moment about raw materials like cobalt and other things that we use in battery technology. Are those things that are being looked at right now as well? Yeah, of course. I mean, 
tying it back to the sustainability issue, we need to look generally at supply chains and especially those raw materials because there's actually a lot of sustainability risks or ESG risks in those supply chains. So we look at them very carefully. So is there a particular company, business or sector that you think are doing particularly badly at reducing their carbon footprint and becoming carbon neutral? I think you can find stars in all sectors and you can find laggards in all sectors. We're trying to, of course, support the stars and then also drive up the ones that are maybe lagging a little bit behind. If somebody is completely not on board with the sustainability agenda, then we would not finance them. Do you think we should ever name and shame the ones that aren't performing as well as they could be? You know, I don't think we need to do that because, as you know, in the UK, in the European Union, in many, many countries, disclosure regulations for ESG and sustainability are completely rising right now. So I think companies will start to disclose themselves where they stand. And also people are talking with their money. If they can check out these companies, decide, well, actually, you're not performing well. I'm going to spend my money elsewhere. And that can be a massive, massive catalyst for change, can't it? Yeah, I think that's actually one of the three drivers that we see currently for why sustainability and ESG is becoming so such a big topic. So one thing is certainly the consumers, they make more ethical decisions rather than only financial decisions. That's what the science tells us. So for businesses out there who want to move away from having a negative impact, mitigating their damage and having a more positive one, how would they go about doing it? I think every company can find its unique opportunities to have a more positive impact. Just as an example, if you're a manufacturer and you find that you have a shortage of labor and you maybe think around, okay, could I build a nursery? And then suddenly you have, you know, maybe 50 women that can come and work for you because they know their children are taken care of. Then you have tremendous positive impact on employment rates, on the on the women around the local community, etc. So every company can identify such opportunities, I think. What about the companies who are, you know, small, medium-sized companies that can't really bring in a, a nursery just like that? Have you seen any clever ways that they've dealt with the challenges they face? For smaller companies, what I would recommend is to go with it with an sort of an audit attitude. So you can do in the same way that you can do, for example, an energy audit and you can identify what energy efficiency measures can actually reduce your costs. You can do the same for water. You can do the same for waste. You can do the same for, well, as I said, electricity generation. And then you can have a positive impact on your balance sheet because you're actually reducing your costs, but you also at the same time have a positive impact on the environment, for example. Let's imagine I had a billion pounds to spend and I gave it to you and I said, there's a business out there, it's not doing too well. What would you advise them to do with this money? So what you would do is first a materiality assessment. That means that you would identify for your specific business what the main material points are. Material means, A, where am I most damaging to the environment, to the social fabric, to you know other sustainability factors? And then you identify where can I make the most positive impact. So, for example, if you're an agriculture business that uses a whole lot of water, then of course maybe water is a more important factor to you than solar panels because you actually don't maybe use as much electricity. For another company, it would maybe be the electricity generation that's the main pain point. And then you would obviously channel your billion pounds, which is a good amount, by the way, you can yes. do a lot with that. You would channel that towards that, but what's most material to your business. And let's try a different way now. If I were to say, you sound like somebody who is super smart, I want you to be prime minister, president 
And I said, right, how do we put together a sustainable action plan for people generally? What do you think that should look like? Well, I mean, that's happening at many levels. In fact, I mean, countries putting together their sustainability action plan, it could be a NDC, that's the nationally determined contributions under part of the United Nations framework for climate change. So countries decide what is our pathway. Then whole sectors do it. They look at decarbonization pathways. And these are then often also agreed like on a national level, for example. And businesses do it because investors want to see it. They want to see, okay, how if I'm giving you money, what's your strategic plan for sustainability? So I think that is happening. Maybe individuals don't do it as much. If I gave you, I don't know, a genie in a bottle and I said, look, you've got three wishes to fix the world's carbon challenges and sustainability issues, what would your three wishes be? The first one would certainly be the price on carbon to get the economics right. Yeah. The second would then be the price on natural resources, yes. uh, also to get the economics right. And then I think the third would be to even further increase the awareness of those topics because people also need to know and understand that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think an awareness campaign always goes a long way. I fly a lot and because I feel a little bit guilty, I'm not going to tell you on a scale of one to 10 how guilty I feel. I work with young people and I get them to, you know, recycle more and plant trees and encourage them to learn to take care of the nature and natural spaces around them. On a scale of one to 10, how guilty do you feel about your day-to-day -day travel? <laughs> I would try to make you feel a little bit better about it. Yes, um, please. So look, I think it's about making conscious choices and we also need to take modern life into account. So when we think about how is the world going to look 2050 when we're hopefully uh, carbon neutral or carbon zero even, uh, sorry, carbon negative, negative, negative thank you. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean that the world's going to stop flying, yeah. right? We will still be flying. Now, again, I think A, it's about conscious choices. So for every flight that you take, you should think, is it really necessary? You know, you don't have to fly to Manchester, you can take the train. If you go to uh, South Africa, I mean, you probably have to take the plane. It's also true that, again, here, I think the industry needs to decarbonize. So we need to decarbonize flying by looking at the fuel that's being used, by decarbonizing how we connect the traffic to and from an airport, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I also fly. It comes part of my job and I don't think I can do entirely without it. I can't help but notice you didn't give me a number on a scale of <laughs> one to 10 of how guilty you feel. Yeah. Okay, so I think I would say five. five. Five, because you are making conscious choices, like you said. I try to make conscious choices. It's not perfect. You know, I think we whip people a lot when you know they're up there and we expect them to be but we're not perfect and i think it's only right that people should be a little bit lenient and say well actually if you're trying and you're making headway that's good enough what is in your day-to-day -day life you feel most shamed about in terms of your carbon footprint sustainability wise yeah i would say fashion yes fashion. i do like my clothes you like your clothes and i know the fashion industry is not exactly a beacon of uh, sustainability and what are you doing about that well, I'm trying to definitely consume less. Yeah. So I don't have to go crazy in the every time the sales are on. What's most positive in your life in terms of your carbon footprint? Well, look, again, I try to make conscious choices. In my particular case, I've stopped eating meat many, many years ago, which is obviously... You're vegetarian, uh, vegan. Yeah, vegetarian. Fun fact, it takes about 600 liters of water to make a cheeseburger. Do you calculate your carbon footprint in terms of how much CO2 you're releasing from one activity to the next? In my personal life? In your personal my life. Job. <laughs> no, personal life. No, I don't. No. We do do that for our investments. We calculate GHG emissions. We calculate GHG savings 
in comparison to a business as usual scenario and we hold our clients quite accountable to them. Oh, wow. How do you hold them accountable? Well, we monitor. Ah. So for the life of our loan, of course, there's conditions as with any loan that you take. You know, if you've ever taken out a loan from a bank, you know, that comes with a long list of conditions. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, in our case, that's also quite a stringent list of environmental and social conditions. And so we, wow. will, we will monitor. And do you penalize them if they don't adhere to the, the agreement? Of course, we will wait into the client relationship and we'll always try to work with the client to fix it because what we want is not just to abandon and leave the client alone because then we know nothing is going to evolve. We want to really, really work with them and get them to the point. But if somebody were, let's say, grossly negligent and really again and again and again not comply, then of course we have legal recourse to that, even on environmental grounds as well. You're back to being president again now. So take off your economist hat, put on your presidential hat. You've got a party going on at your house. It's a big party. You've got one space. On the left, you've got former president Donald Trump. On the right, you've got youth activist Greta Thunberg. You've got one space. Which one are you letting in? Oh, definitely Greta, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. Why I don't Greta? think I have anything to communicate with Donald Trump. No. <laughs> no. Don't you want to convert him into a believer? I think that battle is lost in that specific case. I have no hope. Do you have any resources that people who want to find out more can go to? Stuff that you might have read. It could be a website, book, anything. What I personally really enjoy reading is the um, Financial Times newsletter, Moral Money. That's really great. And it puts really the finger on what's hot and what's cooking every week. And another magazine that I really enjoy reading is Environmental Finance because it really puts the environmental and the financial topic together and I find it good literature. Oh, that's awesome, Maya. If our listeners want to find out more about ESG or EBRD, where do they go to find out? Yeah, so visit us on our webpage, ebrd.com. We have tons of resources there. Um, we're a public institution, so putting out resources that are useful for people is obviously one of our mandates. We're on social media. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Insta, Twitter, wherever you want. Great stuff. That was Big Earth Energy. Thank you to you, Maya, for joining us. And thank you to you, dear listener. We'll be back with another episode soon.